Welcome to episode three of the Digital Fabrication Experiment, a podcast about all things CNC. I'm Winston Moy, and I'm joined by my illustrious co-host, Eddie Kramer. We're hobby machinists, and we'd like to bring you into our conversation about life in the shop and topics in making. Eddie, how are you doing? Really good, Winston. How are you? I can't complain. It's been a long day, though. Good weekend for you? Yeah, decent weekend. I went home to uh, see my family and uh, clean up my, my old room at my dad's house. Starting to get ready for the, uh, the impending move in the future. Any interesting thing going on in your workshop this week? My workshop's been surprisingly quiet. Um, I've got a video that I've been working on in the on the back burner. Uh, hopefully it'll come out this week. I'm trying out these uh, plastic cutting end mills from X-Edge Tools. So they have these low helix uh, end mills with chip breakers. And it's supposed to be good for like really high material removal rates in soft plastics so like PVC, HDPE polypropylene, stuff like that. So I've, I've been sort of just dipping my toes into um, higher feed rate machining. And uh, I started off with cellular PVC, which uh, you can buy as trim board at Home Depot or Lowe's. And it's, it's basically like aerated PVC. There's really not a lot of substance or mass in there, uh, which means you can just slice through it. The chips like just compact and they just blow away or they disintegrate which is good because you can just feed through it really fast. But the problem is, because it's so not solid, it doesn't do a good job of taxing the end mill. So I really wasn't able to find the performance limits of these end mills. I'm going to put out a video, but there's going to have to be a follow-up where I start machining some, some more solid filled plastics to, to really explore the performance envelope of these end mills. Uh, other than that, um, one of my friends, he's starting a little business and he was looking for his logo to be um, engraved, painted, or just otherwise filled in wood. And uh, so I knocked out a couple variants of that for him and uh, sent them off to him. So once he is uh, in a happy place with his uh, little startup, maybe I'll share some videos from uh, that machining process. What about you? I know you were uh, just machining a little Delrin. Yeah, so uh, the prototype part I mentioned that I'm working on for a third party, um, I finally got to run it again in the 3D printed fixture, the orange fixtures. I failed twice trying to make it with the vice, uh, mainly just because it's a three plus two strategy and I had the Delrin sitting vertically in the vice. It's like about a two inch by two inch piece of stock. It was a little too loose in the vice sitting uh, vertically. I think we talked about it last week. Did you have a uh, catastrophic failure? No, I could just tell from the cut. It was I was even trying. I was going pretty conservatively um, in his Delrin. Usually, I I was hoping I would be able to get away with it, but I could tell it was it was working its way loose. Because I, I think part of the problem on my vice, I've over tightened it and bent the little vertical pins, so I probably need to replace those. The three D printed work holding work so far is working really really well. I'll have a post tomorrow, kind of showing the machining, and I've got to the roughed out state. I did like three plus two adaptive on uh, front, back, and top, and then some drilling. Had some really tiny holes that I had to drill. Wasn't really expecting problems, but so far I'm really happy with with how the fixture is holding up. This is still like my draft part, so I'll do it probably two or three more times before I consider the the part final. But I need you know I need to do some measurements, make sure it's it's holding the tolerances I'm trying to shoot for for this part. Yeah, so I hope to have all that done and ready to show them. Probably Monday or Tuesday evening, I think. Stepping back for a bit, I want to ask you about that drilling operation. Do you have, like, are you following, like, a fees and speeds chart for that, like, for these micro drills, or 
or are you sort of just winging it? All my uh, speeds and peas of my drills are derived from uh, something JPL Richard told me a while back. Uh, he gave me uh, some guidance when I was first starting to drill aluminum on the other mill. And I've used that kind of as my reference for picking speeds and feeds. So I, I definitely went faster than I do in aluminum because it was Delrin. And this was also the first time I did uh, pecking. So, yeah, it wasn't real scientific. Uh, I just kind of got it into the ballpark where I thought it would be fast enough where it wasn't going to melt the plastic and start sticking to the, the drill. And not so fast that it was going to break or be inaccurate and give me a hole that wasn't accurate. Uh, I was going to say, are you still uh, playing nice and adhering to that official 10,000 RPM spindle limit? Yes. Yeah, we got to talk more about that. Um, last time we talked, you were going to measure it with a... I, I still haven't. I'll get to it, though. But I can I can hear something different in the pitch of the motor when I accidentally plug in like 12 or 14,000 RPM. We got to figure out what those limits actually are. What Winston's talking about is um, I looked up the specs on the, the spindle motor for the pocket NC. The manufacturer specs, and there's actually some RPM left on the table. I think it's, if I'm reading the the data sheet correctly, it looks like the max RPM is 14,400 on the uh, the motor that's in the Pocket NC V2, and I think it's in the later V1 Pocket NC machines, the ones that have the upgraded um, tool holder. For whatever reason, the the official spec from Pocket NC says 10k is the max, and that may be true. Maybe there's a limitation in the the uh, driver for the spindle or current draw or something like that. I'll find out before the next episode. We're going to test how far it can really go. I treat the 10K as a hard limit. I do almost all my machining at 10K, though. It's kind of interesting because I use such small tools. They're, they're really happy at the R- RPM range. I did one full batch of spinners this week after saying I wasn't going to do any more. I really just want to have some inventory because um, I know I'm going to be giving out onesies and twosies here and there. I kind of give them out as you know favors or thank you for, for somebody who's done something nice for me instant machinist community so i'll have some uh like 90 percent finished not assembled just kind of some component parts ready to go the stuff that takes longer and i'm behind on cases for the spinners so I'll, i gotta wrap that up this week i have two i got i need to finish and then uh the only other thing i was doing this week was some work in fusion working on a modular vice design for the shape oko 3 with t-tracks so I was trying to see if I could come up with a low-profile design. Uh, somebody had asked me if I knew of any out there. Probably wouldn't be that hard to make. So I'm kind of about halfway through uh, a design I think might be worth pursuing. Are you do, like sourcing your own T-Track or are you going to use the uh, Carbide 3D kit? It doesn't fit any of the... <laughs> it's actually... The, I haven't done the, the dimensions for the, the T-Track yet because the, the person that acts actually has a custom... Uh, I think he made the, the bed design himself using uh, uh, 8020. So I'll go back and redo it. I'll get the dimensions for the the uh, carbide provided one and probably make it fit that. So it actually doesn't even fit this gentleman's table yet. It was more of like I modeled it up and showed it to him because he didn't under or he wasn't sure what a modular vice was. And I, and I was kind of showing him here's one low profile, low profile solution. He was looking for a, a low profile vice. I really modeled it up initially just to, to further the conversation. So he knew what I was the design that I was talking about. How uh, how low profile is it going for? I did a one inch design. Yeah, I, I think the carbide 3D one's like an inch and a half. I think this would work pretty good. It was uh, a design that I probably could not make on my machines because of some of the deep drilling that would have to happen. Even in aluminum, it would be at like four inch. Some of the bores would be four inches long, which would be and six like six millimeters in diameter. 
the bigger drill bits on these desktop machines is kind of difficult. Especially with a consumer grade spindle run out, it's just not good. Yeah, and just I don't think just enough power to turn a, a bigger drill, you know, at least not in metal. Yeah, that was pretty much it. I think this week I'll be probably just dedicating the rest of the week to finishing the prototype part, making any changes that the customer might want. So you sent me this article from the Wall Street Journal about how automation is going to impact sort of just society and commerce and job opportunities in the future. I kind of want to jump into that and sort of just pick your brain because we didn't really talk about uh, where we agreed or disagreed. And I'm, I'm curious to see what your take is. We'll have a link in the show notes, right? Right. So the, the premise of the article is that everyone's thinking that like automation is going to kill jobs, replace labor, and, and just in general, like put people out of a job. And the author is making the argument that uh, the opposite may actually be true, that because of so many things becoming automated and just being performed by a faceless robot, that the human experience, the human touch is actually going to revitalize uh, certain industries. And he gives the example of coffee. You could very easily have a machine or a vending machine just make you a cup of coffee. But despite the abundance of technology to do this, uh, Starbucks is doing really well, where you can go and you can pay for an overpriced coffee created by a human being. And I'm wondering if, if you think there's any parallels between where he's going with this and where we are in the maker industry. The trend is automation and potential you know, impact to uh, the labor force down the road. But the counter trend is that's just going to probably drive demand for something that has a human in the loop, right? Makes it special, especially if there's a story behind the, the maker or the manufacturer that makes it a unique product. There's two intersections I see between what they were talking about in the article and, and what we've been practicing, right, is uh, digital fabrication participants. One is um, if you're doing this, you'll end up with the skills, right, to be able to participate as a producer in that market. Uh, even with, you know, CNC machines, I don't think, you know, we talked a little bit about before the fact that it's not handmade, but it's still personally made. It's it's, it's mind made. Like there's, there's intent and you, there's a thought process behind it. Even if it's something simple, like a, a box, it, it still reflects um, sort of the, the intent of the creator. To me, the dichotomies between mass production and low volume, potentially highly customized, um, even down to uh, each product being unique for the customer, right? That's To me, that's where the distinction is and where the opportunity is. You know, no matter what happens in the in the uh, mass market, there's uh, it seems to be a growing trend of customers that are interested in something that's uniquely theirs and interfacing with producers that can make something like that. Either craft stuff like we do in the garage, or even you know just low production volume from a boutique type seller. Right, that seems to be uh, the whole premise behind stuff like Etsy. You know, they, actually the article talks a little bit about Etsy and and how the uh, I don't want to say it's a movement, but this whole trend towards people seeking out unique products that are low volume is driving platforms like Etsy. They're doing pretty well because of uh, this growing trend. Uh, I think, you know, I see it on Instagram. There's a lot of people making like just one or two types of products in their home or in a small shop. I think there will be a growing space for 
I don't, I don't know if maker's the right word, but for, for people that have some skills and, and some entrepreneurial uh, talent, you're probably going to be on your own as far as marketing your product and conceptualizing what it is you want to sell and finding your audience or finding your customer base, right? That's all. Uh, it's become a lot easier to do that with all this technology and uh, e-commerce platforms. You know, the, the friction for, for starting up pretty much any kind of little business now is, is really low. It is. Uh, but marketing personalized crafts is is kind of weird because it's not a mass market product. So it's just whoever like happens to go through your little corner of the internet, sees it, they like it. It feels almost local, like you're at a, a flea market. Uh, like the products you find there, um, if you go to a good one, like they're, or a craft fair, they're not the same from a different region of the country. And so you get these really unique items popping up or just slightly different personalized items. And it, it's a reflection of the person who made it. So like your spinners, you drilled out the holes to lighten them up in a particular way. And uh, I, I don't think they, there was any sort of reason behind it, but beyond like it looked good. And I don't think it'll compromise the, the structure of the spinner. And so when someone looks at your spinner versus uh, someone else's spinner, they see, all right, this person has a good eye for design, a uh, good eye for engineering, and they choose to invest in your product. It's kind of like they're expressing confidence in your design decisions. And uh, for me, it's like, how do they find my corner of the internet? And um, some, it's somehow gratifying for them to actually, to, to see a purchase from them, to know that they found uh, my product to be to their liking and a superior enough product to everything else. The joy of discovery is probably a big driver for the customer, right? It's a big part of the satisfaction of finding something that's it's not likely to be something any of their friends already have, something that is well known, right? So discovery, I think on the customer side or on the acquirer purchaser side is, is a big part of the joy in the purchase, right? So I, like I was going to ask you, do you think most of your Ringbox customers found you through searching on Etsy or did they already know your story from your social media? Did that play a role in steering them towards your particular offering? I think it's about 50-50. My YouTube video and my Instagram might have seeded a couple purchases because there were people buying Etsy, maybe promoted it a little. I'm not quite sure how Etsy works yet. I'm not an Etsy pro. I actually, I want to go back a moment and when you said the joy of discovery. I'm not really a big Etsy shopper, so like I, it's hard for me to always relate to that experience of browsing Etsy. But one thing that I do actually take pleasure in is browsing through Kickstarter and seeing what are like the new gadgets and trinkets that show up. And I think that for me is a better indicator of, of just what exactly I enjoy in that. I, I enjoy discovering like a new way of doing something or a product that I've never realize that I need it in my life. And by need, I mean, like, I just, I really want it to discover something legitimately new that you didn't know existed before. Uh, that for me is the, the fun part of shopping. I tend to find the products I like through Instagram, you know, the, the EDC stuff. So the flashlights that I bought some of the other EDC stuff, I'll usually, I'll usually stumble across the, the makers social media before I actually know that they even have a product. And then I kind of see the story and if they actually put something up that I like, a good chance I'll buy one or two of them. Even if they're not for me, I've been giving gifts, uh, trying to make all my gifts, either stuff I make or stuff I found from other Insta machinists. Yeah, that's kind of, that's 
that's where I go to find new products. I, I don't do a lot of searching on the e-commerce platforms themselves because I, to me, the story is important. I want to know more about the person, how they're making it, kind of what a lot of times they'll talk about their design process. Um, a few products like uh, Freelux, I got to watch the design of one of their products or one of his products from concept all the way through, hey, it's available now or pre-order. You know, by the time it got to pre-order, me and probably, I don't know how many other people, but we were all ready to buy it because it was, we were invested in it. <laughs> Had, you know, we even got to do or give some input on, on the design. And he asked a lot of, what do you think about this alternative versus this alternative as he was working through the iterations of the product. And uh, that, you know, that really works. And I don't think it's intentional necessarily. Um, I don't know how, I know my stuff, I don't try to market it uh, consciously. It's more, you know, I put it out there, I show what I'm doing. If people are interested in it, then, uh, you know, that usually leads to some sales. And I think everybody that's bought spinners from me heard about it from Instagram, from my posts, or heard about it from somebody who was following me, right? Word of mouth. I couldn't match all the names to followers or to people I knew on Instagram, but most of them, the ones I could match, um, yeah, I can kind of see how they stumbled across me. For me, um, I've gotten like a couple requests for like, not sponsorships. They, they call them uh, collaborations where companies sort of like seek you out and like, hey, like if we send you this product, do you want to like show it off in your videos? And for the longest time, I couldn't figure out how they were finding me. I know these marketers aren't looking at my YouTube channel, but one of them, Skillshare, they sent me a survey through a link. I think it's the site's called MakerShare, M-A-K-R. Uh, I'll look it up. We'll, we'll link it. But I realized that there's a um, content creator discovery like search engine where they can like type in like, hey, I'm looking for like people who have like this many subscribers, have this average view count per video. That for me was sort of just an eye-opening insight into how that marketing works. But beyond that, there's also people who just who've reached out and asked me to like, hey, do you think you could make like a custom award plaque or something? And I have no idea how these people find me and how they think I'm qualified to make that product. That's something I want to also talk about today. Um, just that feeling of qualification. Because like when we put our stuff out on Etsy, it either sells or it doesn't sell. And whether or not people want it is, is sort of up to them. They can browse. They're, they're more than able to just walk away from it. But when people come to you, it's not because they see something and they want it. A lot of the time is they want you to bring something special to the table. They have an idea for an award plaque and they want you to, to sort of put your own twist on it and make it special. It's kind of weird that I've had people approach me uh, in a way like they're respecting my artistic decisions or creative decisions. I don't really know what to make of it. Have you ever had a, something like that happen to you? I've had outright requests to make something uh, or they have a concept in mind and, you know, very loose concept and share it with me and ask me to design a few iterations and if they like it, make it. So most of that type of work for me, other than this one thing I'm working on right now, has been friends and family. I haven't got a lot of people reaching out through social media or that people that know me through Instagram asking, hey, can you make this part for me? I, I get more uh, requests for help you know, they're trying to make something right. Either uh, purchasing decision about one of the machines like I have. They'll ask probably the, the question I get most often is, hey, I want to, I've got this product in mind or this 
thing that I want to make. Um, here, you know, it's this material, it's this size. Do you think machine X, Y, or Z, one of the ones that I have here, would be the right machine to make that, or is it capable to make it? And sometimes I'll say, well, let me, you know, I've got that material. I've, I can probably, you know, at least test some of the more difficult operations. I might run it and then say, here's what it looks like. This is, I think, what you were talking about, or you had in mind. Um, and here's here's the outcome on, say, the other mill or the Nomad. And I know a lot of those have led to new Nomad owners, <laughs> new other mill owners, mm-hmm. and pocket a couple of pocket NC owners, I think. The rest are uh, the more technical assistants. Hey, I've got a machine. I saw you do something on Instagram. I want to try to do that here. You know, it's like a lot of questions about speeds and feeds and uh, machining strategies. And those are the ones like I get that feeling that you were kind of mentioning. It's like I'm probably like the least qualified person you could ask you know, for yeah like do they realize you're an enterprise architect yeah um i mean these that's that's my internal dialogue right it's like why are they asking me it's like because i follow all these people like i could think of I, I could throw a dart and find a probably a more experienced machinist the people that i follow right? it would probably be better a lot of the times they're hobby people they're not professionals or they're not doing this uh commercially so they want to reach out probably to another hobbyist hoping there be some some uh patience for that type of question and you know i actually like uh helping in that way because a lot of times i i a will make a new friend and b find out about something interesting that's going on right that they're working on but yeah it it took me a while to get comfortable with answering questions with uh, a lot of reservation (laughs) right you know this is you know here's what i would do but be really careful because i i haven't tried that myself you know or something like that so now i'm actually you know it's my confidence on my machines has improved over the probably the last 18 months. I've been more comfortable giving advice like that. Um, and a lot of it's really turns out you don't necessarily give them the prescriptive answer. It's like, especially the speeds and feeds questions. A lot of times I can point them to the the reference source, right? They don't even know the links out there, like for the, for the manufacturer's speeds and feeds tables for carbide 3d, for example, that's nine times out of 10. That's really, if they knew that was there, that would have answered their question, right? So they're happy to find those resources. I know a lot of those resources because I had to dig them up myself and I keep them handy. You know, a lot of times I'll, I'll give them a little bit of try this, but here's, if you want to know more, there's uh, some good links to follow up on. And that's been, I think that's worked pretty well. Um, I get a lot of feedback after the initial questions. A lot of times I get pictures of the finished part. Hey, thanks a lot. It worked really well. And I like that a lot. I like that interaction between the the maker community, right? On at least Instagram. I think almost all this stuff's coming at least in my case, through Instagram. Yeah, because you're not on YouTube yet, right? But you will be soon, right? Yeah, comments on YouTube look a little more... Uh, that's a little harsher environment, right? For uh, feedback. <laughs> oh, God, yeah. I was... Right before the podcast, I, I got another comment notification. And I looked, and it was a part of a thread that was a year old. Someone on one of my videos, they were, like, complaining, like, oh, like, like the shape is not a real CNC. It's not designed by, like, real engineers. And like you could buy like X, Y, or Z Chinese machine and it'd be so much better. And like I asked him like, well, like, do you have another one of these systems that's like comparable in terms of like customer support, price, and like availability, ease of use? And like he just continued on his rant that like it wasn't designed by a real engineer, so it's like not valid. And people in the comments started like mocking him like Mr. Like mechanical engineer here. Like why hasn't he responded? Like three months later, like someone posted. Like then it was like eight months later. Uh, like they're, they're still like, well, nope, he's still quiet. I guess he hasn't found a, like a rebuttal. And just now, like a full year later, someone was like, nope, he's still silent. It, sometimes there are trolls and sometimes they get burned pretty hard. 
it's easy today to point to, you know, either good shape Oko work or Nomad or whatever, uh, Pocket NC. You know, if it's not us doing it, someone else like Vince, Vince Fab, I can point any doubter uh, who's got concerns that shape Oko can't do good aluminum work, even pretty big automotive parts, and say, hey, <laughs> take a look at this and, and tell me uh, tell me again that it can't do decent work. Yeah, I've, I've had to point people to him or, or JPL Richard a lot just because... Um... As, as my position, as I hate to say like a YouTube educator, but I put up videos of how not to cut aluminum, like sharing my lessons and, and people look to that and they, they draw what they can from it. It's weird having to teach people through your mistakes because I would love to just say, hey, like use these feeds and speeds and that's it. But because of the results I'm getting as I'm always learning as I go, I, I can't just lay down a definitive like here's a rule of thumb, always use this. And so I try and portray myself as someone who's still learning. But when people come to me and they're like, hey, like, would you recommend this cutter or like, how would I do X, Y, or Z? And they expect me to have a straight up answer. Chances are I've never done their particular application, but it it still feels weird that they're coming to me, even though I try not to portray myself as a know-it-all on YouTube. And I don't know how to sort of just, I've been trying to, to, like sort of temper their expectations saying like, well, I, I haven't quite pushed the shape Oko that hard in aluminum, but if you check out like Vince Fab, he'll like sort of show you like what the limits are. Or if you want like a really meticulous, massive block of aluminum, like machine down, check out like JPL Richards, uh, filing machine, which was a really cool project. I don't know. For the longest time, I was weirded out by people looking up to me and I really resisted the idea of making like a tutorial style video because I, d- I didn't want the responsibility of laying out knowledge and having it potentially be wrong because like people will still point out things like I do wrong, like I'm wearing gloves when I'm using a router table and, and like little things like that. It's almost scary to have that responsibility of having people learning from you and you hope that they learn the right things. The people that asked for help for me have been reasonable about what they were asking for usually they're good questions, right? I've been fortunate that a lot of times I, I'll have the answer close by, because, especially like the speeds and feeds on a particular material with a particular machine, right? If I have that machine and I've cut that material before, I can go right into Fusion and, and cut and paste the operation, you know, like the passes tab and send that to them. They love that because <laughs> a lot of times that's exactly what they're looking for, right? I'd say probably 80% of the people that ask questions are what I would consider fellow hobbyists. Uh, and 20% of them are doing commercial work. <laughs> so those guys I'm really careful with because like, you know, I don't know what it's going to cost them if I give them bad advice, right? They're making a product. And sometimes it's been, hey, I make, like I had one gentleman that he makes uh, golf clubs, I think putters. And he wanted to know if the Shapeoko could mill that. And this was before I even had a Shapeoko. And I'm like, what material? And it was titanium. <laughs> so I'm like, um, <laughs> so yeah, I don't know if that would be my first choice, right? For that, especially, you know, he was getting ready to start, not start a business, but it was a business purchase, right? I, I don't know what he was currently using, but he wanted to, I think he was doing it, shopping it out to a job shop and he wanted to bring it in house. I think that was the premise. This was like almost a year ago. I couldn't really help him other than saying, Hey, um, you know, there's kind of the next level up machine, like the Tormach class machines, you know, there's lots of examples of those cutting titanium successfully. And so I kind of just send them to the links. Yeah, so go learn, you know, go learn more about this class of machine. It's a bigger investment, but it's much more likely to do what you want it to do, right? So 
Yeah, basically, if it doesn't have flood coolant, you're probably going to be in a world of hurt. Yeah, and and some good spindle power, right? So yeah, I mean, some of it's like that. It's just stuff that's outside of my uh, in it, my comfort zone on giving advice. Uh, and I'll usually, you know, I'll give them something. I usually just send them off or send them to uh, a better source of information if I know one. The bulk of the stuff falls into questions that I'm now comfortable answering because it falls into some some area that I've had experience with before. And I'm starting to get more opportunities to do what you were mentioning, the collaboration. Um, if someone else is working on something and maybe either wants to target one of my machines for their product or wants to know my thoughts on, you know, hey, I, I want to build some sort of, uh, lately it's been work holding, um, got some stuff going on. You, you know about some of it, but uh, might actually end up with some stuff I can use in my machine once uh, it's all that is said and done, you know, with some help from, from some of the other instant machinists that I know. Is one of them... Uh pocket NC work holding with uh, a vice like a like a four jaw chuck or something uh you saw what i did with the 3d printed fixtures so think of that architecture as far as the shape and the and the orientation of the stock um but more traditional uh what you would see on a on an industrial machine you know they're usually like a room usually a two-part system like a base plate and a, a removable piece that could be a vice going on or, or a lot of times it's just a, a riser that has some mighty bites or something like that on it to hold a particular part gotcha yeah i'm looking uh, I'm, I'm interested in a low cost uh solution that's small enough and light enough to fit on the pocket nc but still give you the, some of the benefits that you get with the removable work holding it's, it's not quite a pallet but you can swap it out pretty fast like you could have a set of hopefully repeatable top parts i don't know if you call it the risers you can you can put whatever height you need in there for your for your particular uh, job have confidence that it's that it's uh, aligned properly in the machine after removal and, and replacing it kind of back to the topic you were talking about i don't know if confidence is the right word but i think it's kind of a common phenomenon right for for people to have uh, some reservation when they're they don't they're probably the last one to know they have any expertise right it seems to be the people around you notice it before you acknowledge that you you could actually help somebody. Yeah, imposter syndrome, it's, it's a very real thing. I mentioned my reluctance to do tutorials uh, just because I didn't think I was qualified to be the one giving information. And the only reason I'm, I'm starting to sort of show a little more about my process and try and expand my video and go into more detail is um, because Ed Ford at Maker Faire last year, I, I told him like, I would like to get into the more instructional side of things, and but only when I'm ready. When I'm qualified, and he said, "Well, I, I, I kind of think you are qualified." For me, that sort of turned on a light bulb in my head that you don't have to know everything, but if you're willing to put yourself out there in an honest way and approach it with like a solid technical approach, you can you can make a positive impact. Uh, you don't have to know everything before you start teaching. Like professors, like. Some, a lot of times, like, they've got a PhD in a certain area, but they're not always teaching that particular class. Like, um, I had a professor who was uh, in college who was a, she specialized in mechatronics, but she was also teaching, like, statics and strength of materials and stuff that she didn't specialize in. But it's sort of just, if you have the basics, if you have, like, if you can reason through things in a way where you can sort of transfer knowledge really well, it's still a net win. I don't need to be a fusion master to help out and benefit the community. That, that was the, the big thing for me. Like, I don't need to be a genius, but I need to 
go into it with a mindset that I want to make a positive contribution. To me, a lot of the stuff I post on Instagram, my attitude is come learn with me, right? <laughs> Let's learn this together. Especially the earlier stuff I was doing, you know, it was a, it was a, there was a nice feedback loop going when I was first learning how to, to uh, do CNC. I would post stuff and I think John Saunders went through a lot of this with his early videos too, right? He would post a technique, maybe there was a better way of doing it. He would get the part completed or maybe it would end in failure, right? But he would get feedback um, from people that knew even more than he did saying, hey, you know, good constructive feedback, not necessarily the trolling, right? Um, that say, hey, you know, maybe do this or, or make this change and try it again. And I, I've received feedback like that, like on the drilling. I, you know, I mentioned Richard, um, just from looking at the video, he's like, hey, you're going way too slow. <laughs> Your feed rate's way too slow. I didn't really know, especially on drilling, like I don't really know where to even find a, a good speed and feed for these machines. But he could just tell from the sound, I think, on the video or, or what he was seeing that, and, you know, he gave me pretty specific, you know, I think he said bump it up like that's carbide you're cutting with, uh, bump it up like three times, which you're going and or two or three times. I can't remember exactly what he said. And it ran so much better after I did that and faster. <laughs> I'll post stuff out there. I won't necessarily say this is the way to do it. It's more like, hey, here's what I'm doing. I think there's people that can look at that and advance their knowledge a little more. And then there's folks that might say, you know, it could be done. That's pretty cool, but it can be done even better. And I'll get feedback. And the next, you know, next time I post, you'll see a change, right? That's why I'm doing this for me. I think it's, is just, uh, uh, I learn by helping other people learn. It's been a really good positive feedback loop. And also, uh, teaching them how to learn the, the process of trial and error. It's, it's okay to fail. And a lot of the times what I see is like, people are like, so concerned, like, like they want to get the feeds and speeds, right? Like right off the bat, like, Oh, I'm about to start like milling wood for the first time like what router setting should i use like how many inches per minute what's the, my depth of cut and that's a problem for me sometimes when i'm trying to do new materials like with those uh the plastic cutting animals i was telling you about I, I spent a day or two just sitting in front of fusion like do i post it now with these feeds and speeds or do i or do i just do a little more research and try and tweak it it's okay to just experiment to to learn live and, and figure it out it's okay if you, you cut into wood and you start burning the edges. Like It's part of the process. Um, but being willing to approach it, to realize that something's wrong, to readjust and try again, uh, I think that's the most valuable takeaway, to, to just build that into your workflow, that it's okay to fail, um, but just keep at it, you'll get there. Yeah, and I, I think I'm with you on that. I'm, I'm fine with failing publicly because I think there's knowledge to be gained both on my side and the people watching, right? You got to be a little bit egoless in this uh, social media game. But um, I look at John Saunders, who's kind of my role model on what to post on social media, like pretty much anything, good, bad, ugly, doing it right, doing it wrong. It's all beneficial to the poster and to potentially people watching it and learning and maybe seeing comments that, hey, there's a better way to do it, right? We all get better through that process. I, I think you take a more deliberate approach to the teaching style. My thing's kind of always been just here's what here's what I'm working on right now. Here's what's going on in my shop, and here's a particular technique I'm applying right now. Right, that's probably always going to be the nature of my Instagram posts. Uh, but YouTube, yeah, I'd like to do more project, more project focus. Either sometimes it's just going to be pure project. Hey, here's something I want to make, and I just show end to end. Sometimes it's going to be hey, I want to learn how to do something. We're going to try it, fail or not. We're going to post it and. Uh, you know, just kind of see where that goes. So I think there's a lot of value in, in doing all that. You know, you were talking about imposter syndrome. I've become a little more comfortable. I think it's just experience, right? Giving advice in cer certain areas. 
I, I still don't feel entirely comfortable. Like I had someone on um, Instagram message me like, hey, like how do you use the uh, the V carving feature in Fusion 360? And I've, I've shown off that feature before in I think my brass branding iron video where I had to notch out the, uh, the area between like letters and the sharp corners and like the letter N or whatever. And I, I could have just pointed them there, but my first answer was, um, why don't you see if Lars has a video about it? Um, like, just, I, I, I didn't want me to be his first, like, introduction into this technique, because I know there are people who do it better. And I, I think, for me, still, like, the, the series that I, I still feel the most apprehension about is my intro to CNC, like, five video series. Um, because that is a video series that's deliberately trying to prepare people for something. For, for how to embrace CNC or, or how to roll into it, what expectations to have. And I, I'm saying that as an authority, and it still kind of weirds me out that I, I've sort of put that out there. I'm comfortable with all the material that's in it, but to get over the mental hump that I am trying to advise people is, is kind of weird. Definitely had that experience. You got to get over it and just give the best advice you can, right? And, and don't be afraid to say, I don't know, right? That's also important. I've had to say that several times. It's like, you're asking something I have no experience with. Best I can do is say, hey, I, you know, there's somebody else doing something kind of like what you're talking about. Um, take a look at this, right? And that might be the end of that. Yeah, I am, I am careful, especially around machining advice itself to stay within the limits of what I know and what I've done before, right? I don't want, to, I don't want anybody getting hurt or anybody breaking an expensive machine or work part or anything like that. Yeah, or like machining titanium and setting their house on fire. I did do the titanium on the Nomad, and I think I pretty much said, you know, it works, it can do it, probably will not do this again, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> at least not on that machine. But I think there's been some other people that have done it based on either my video or Apollo's video and uh, or his, his social media post about it and had some success. But And I, I try to make that pretty clear when I'm doing something that's really either at the limits of what these machines can do. And I just want to know if it can, um, you know, if there's other like cautions, right? Like the liquid, I had to use coolant on the Nomad, which isn't really designed for it. So, you know, I hate to have someone else do that. I was willing to, you know, if things went wrong with my machine, I, I'm comfortable fixing it, but the next person might not be, right? Uh, you just have to be careful about the advice you give. And so I, I do send, I send a lot of people to uh, Fusion Forums, which are really great. I use them a lot myself. I need to use them more. Yeah, and the manufacturer site. So I, I want to do, I'm party on doing this, but I did a lot of speeds and feeds tests on the Pocket NC and, or lesser, to a lesser degree on the Nomad in a lot of materials and, and using adaptive. The manufacturer's website, a lot of times they don't have speeds and feeds for adaptive. So a lot of time, I think it's just like a 2D profiling is typically what they post. A lot of the times it's it's in a language that people understand. It's inches per minute and it's RPM um, because they don't want to get into chip load and any of those other factors that you could use to sort of interpolate your way to, to a slightly different situation. Like, hey, I want to run at a different RPM. Like, how should I modify my parameters? So one of my to-dos is to supplement that information and get some more detailed speeds and feeds published, especially for the Pocket NC. I, can, I don't know his name, but uh, it's... Instagram handles Tokyo Pav. Uh, he he was the one that published the original speeds and feeds for the Pocket NC version one. Right, that's the only one I've ever seen. The only table I've ever seen. And he and I have, have communicated on Instagram 
um, you know, he's kind of said, are you going to publish your stuff? Because, <laughs> you know, when I was doing all that aluminum adaptive and I, I think I said I was going to do it back in March. Um, I think it was, yeah, it was a while ago. I'm a little tardy on it, but I actually want to go back and do a second run. I, I did a lot of work with the single flute. Got, I have a good data on that. I think I also want to do uh, kind of the same finding the limits with the two flute, more common cutter, and then have the comparison there too. Because I think, you know, my experience with the single flutes is they, they work really, really well on the small machines in aluminum, especially in the faster machine like the, or faster spindle like the the other mill, but even on the pocket and see at the small cutter, you know, three millimeters or smaller is getting really good results. I don't see anything like that for these machines. It's all kind of two flute or three flute. I have to find the right medium to post it. You know, I'll, I'll probably talk to Carbide 3D and or Pocket and see if they're interested in hosting that information on the website. If they're not, you know, if they think it's a little too extreme <laughs> for their machine, then I'll just, uh, I'll, I'll figure some way to host it. Yeah, talk to Will, uh, see if you can get on the ShapeOko wiki, because there is a whole feeds and speeds section there. It would be nice to have your values tabulated there also for people to cross-reference. Yeah, I think ShapeOko is probably the one area I have, I'll have the least to contribute, because I haven't done much with it yet, and like, there's a lot more information about ShapeOko than there is Nomad, Other Mill, or Pocket and C by far, right? Because I think it's a, just a bigger user base. But it's also tribal. Like a lot of the feeds and speeds there uh, is like, hey, I tried it. It worked well. But you don't really know the science of why it did or if it's optimal. Yeah. So there might be, yeah, there might be room to do kind of the, I wouldn't call it scientific, but I do kind of a methodical approach um, when I'm testing out a new cutter and either existing material or testing out a new material um, with everything else. You know, I try to keep just one free variable, right? Everything else kind of the same. So yeah, I, I'll probably end up doing that with the ShapeOko and see if I can, you know, maybe get similar data. I know I'm pretty sure the single flutes are going to rock on that machine. The bigger single flutes, like the six millimeter that I've been dying to try on there. Uh, <laughs> speaking of which, yeah, my enclosure, my 8020 order finally shipped. I think it's coming in, uh, where is it going to be here? Tuesday. So yeah, that, that's going to be uh, part of what I'll be doing next week is putting that together. And I actually, I didn't order the Lexan. I'm going to wait to order the balls until I get it assembled and make sure those dimensions are right. Yeah, you don't want to measure it and have your Lexan be off by like, oh, it's a half inch too short. Now my there's a gap in my doors or something. Exactly. the 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 main concern is there's um I bought the little inserts that go in the in the uh, center slots on the extrusions. Like it's a reducer, so I don't they didn't have dimensions on that. So uh, they have broad dimensions, but I don't know the the dimension of the slot itself, the reducer. So I need to get actually get it assembled, put those in, and then see how much how much space I lose with the reducer to, before I order the the panels. I'm really looking forward to getting that done. Are you going to try and size the enclosure such that like you can buy like a two by four sheet Alexan or something or something in a regular dimension? It's all going to have to be custom cut. Yeah, because I, I I size the enclosure. You know, basically based on the, the machine dimensions plus clearance for accessories in the front and a little bit in the back. I, mean, I think I ended up at pretty even numbers on millimeters, not in inches. But I have a feeling once I put those reducers in, it's going to be some odd size. You would be designing it in metric. As as someone who deals with wood a lot more, I, I'm pretty stuck in the, the inch or fractional world. Oh, yeah. I work in metric almost exclusively. I spent some childhood time in Australia and it was at the formative years where they were teaching metric and it stuck, right? So by the time I got back, you know, the U S was going through this metric education phase, which ultimately they gave up on. But, uh, for whatever reason, I, 
I, I think in metric at least. One of the things that I, I'm looking to do in my next video is to sort of open up the comments as a forum um, because I don't want to, the next video is going to be specifically about my experiences machining cellular PVC and I don't want to come across as like an expert in that particular field. I'm going to open up and ask the audience like, hey, I'm going to be machining these plastics. Like, does anyone have any tips for the ideal surface fee per minute for HDPE or something like that? I, I think the, the big thing is to be honest about what you do know. Don't try and be something you're not. Like when I did my original how to cut aluminum slash how not to cut aluminum video, I, I could have just stated things like as a fact, but I let them sit there more as guidelines and I came back years later and I, I that uh, um, drink tablet organizer that I made when I started using adaptive tool paths, um, I, I tried to use that to sort of revise and sort of update what I'd learned. But also I think this is supposed to be a two-way conversation, so don't be afraid to to open it up. Let other people answer things for you. Direct people to people who know better. Because even if you don't know it, uh, being able to point people in the right directions uh, makes you a fantastic resource. I read a lot. You probably read a lot. Yeah, I've said it before. We're CNC nerds, so there's a good chance we've run across something, even if we can't apply it ourselves. It could be helpful to someone on some future question, right? But in the end, you know, if you're asking me, you're you're getting a machinist that has at most 18 months of experience since he first touched a CNC machine. So keep that bias in mind. You're not getting a master machinist <laughs> answering your questions, but you're, you're getting someone who's done some crazy things with the little desktop machines and found some limits. Sometimes I can kind of tell you, you can go way harder than you're going now and you're still not going to break your machine. Don't worry about it. <laughs> Here's a video where I, where I can prove to you that it's it'll, it'll handle that just fine. Our first podcast, you were talking about that fear that initial new machine owners have about breaking the machine, right? I, I can hear that fear in the in some of the questions I get. So I always feel really good when I can show them uh, an actual video or something that I've done in the past where, you know, here here it is doing exactly what you want it to do in metal. Like, yeah, you can cut metal, stay within these parameters. And, you know, at worst, the, the work holding might fail and the part will come loose, but maybe break your cutter, but the machine's going to gonna not have any problem with it. It's not going to be broken at the end of the day. So I think that helps a lot too. Worst case, it's usually you're out like, a couple dollars for an end mill. You're not going to destroy the machine. For whatever reason, I got over that fear myself pretty quickly. It didn't take me long to stick metal in, in the other mill when I first got it. Because that's really what I, you know, that's what I wanted to do, right? I was, whatever CNC machine I had, it was going to cut metal in it. My experience was with the uh, Shape Oko 2 using a Dremel as a spindle. And I think my fourth project, I tried to make an aluminum bottle opener. And I probably broke like three or four like 16th inch end mills just a combination of like the dremel not having enough torque and bogging down or my depth of cut being too large i, I failed in so many ways on that but it was okay because i learned from it from that like i know how bad it can feel to fail continuously but i know it's doable so i'll just i'll usually find a way to push through it the the end result will sort of make up for it because all my projects are done as sort of a, a passion of curiosity and uh, so getting through it is is sort of the goal and to learn from it. Yeah, seeing your your post about your original machine with that Dremel spindle was humbling to me. You don't know how good you have it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Sometimes, you know, I, I think I'm struggling with 
I don't want to say the toy machines, but I see the Tormox and, and the smaller industrial machines, what they're doing with those. And sometimes I have my days where I was like, oh, I really just wish I had the machine that could cut tool steel or something like that. But yeah, then I saw your videos, like you were doing decent work with the kind of cobbled together <laughs> looking machine there. Makes me appreciate what I have all that more. We're probably close to the end. I, I think we're about there. We're recording for an hour now. I'll mention a couple of uh, swag-related things that are coming up for DFX Podcast. Real happy to announce that we now have a DFX T-Blaster t-shirt design. We're recording this on Sunday, so it's going live tomorrow, Monday, July 23rd. Uh, I think the campaign's open for a month, so you'll be able to get... I don't know if it's really a special edition, but it's a limited edition. It's going to be the uh, DFX Launch Edition t-shirt. It's going to be... that same fabric, I think that John Saunders mentioned, the next level cotton poly blend. So I have the Saunders Machine Works t-shirt, the new one, and I love that material. So I think I got the same thing. I was trying to specify the same material. There's three colors, our logo on the front. Well, I'll share the link for the uh, T-Blast in the show notes. You can go check it out. If you're interested in supporting the podcast, that's a good way to do it in style. So look for the link to the uh, T-Blast in the show notes Tuesday. By the time you hear it, it'll be out. Yeah, it'll be out. The uh, the only other thing uh, swag related is I we're working on stickers. Uh, you may have seen sample in one of my earlier posts this week. We'll make one more little tweak, and then uh, I'll probably order some of those. I we don't know yet how we're going to distribute those. We'll we'll figure it out by the time we've got enough to start uh, getting them out to any listeners who are interested in supporting us through uh, slapping a sticker on the machine or something. So those turned out pretty good. We'll, we'll figure out a way to distribute them, but uh, safe to say, I think if you see any of us at any event, like let's say we're at Maker Fair or Autodesk University, find us, we'll give you a sticker. So Winston, any, uh, any last minute things you want to share before we wrap it up? The only thing I will say is just don't be afraid to share what you know. Don't be afraid to pull the community and, and keep learning and uh, don't be afraid to fail. It's good advice. Well, I think we're done with this edition of the podcast. Thank you for listening, and please join us in two weeks for the next episode of the Digital Fabrication Experiment. Good night, Winston. Thanks, Eddie. See ya. Oh, wait, I never hit record. No, I'm just kidding.